Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com With me today is Molly Tanzer, writer of the novels Vermillion and The Pleasure Merchant and the short fiction anthology A Pretty Mouth which was nominated for the Sydney J Bounds and the Wonderland Book Award. She's a fantastic short story writer and has written some great non-fiction too with columns for tor.com and my favorite ones pornokish.com. Her next novel out later this year is Rumbullion and Apostrophe. She's also editing a Lovecraftian stories collection out later this year called Swords versus Cthulhu. Um my welcome to Midnight in Karachi. How fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about this Cthulhu anthology. How did this come about? Well, that's really it's it's exciting. It's my first ever anthology, and I'm co-editing it with uh, Jesse Bullington, who edited another anthology for the same company, Stoneskin Press, called Letters to Lovecraft, which was a high concept anthology of short stories of all different kinds that responded specifically to something in H.P. Lovecraft's uh, famous essay, uh, Fear Fear and the Unknown. I think that's the title of it. Now I'm, I'm showing that I didn't do a lot of research for this. Uh, but anyway, they asked him to do a second anthology, also of Lovecraftian fiction, um, Swords vs. Cthulhu, which is a follow-up to their uh, successful earlier anthology, Shotguns vs. Cthulhu, which was a very fun sort of like action and motion and guns and other kinds of uh, ballistic weaponry against Lovecraftian entities. And so this one is their sword and sorcery anthology. And since Jesse and I um, are both big fans of Conan and other sorts of sword and sorcery novels and short stories out there, he asked if I'd like to co-edit. And I jumped at the chance because it seemed like a really cool opportunity to do something I'd never done before. So the stories in Swords v. Cthulhu uh, all feature action and motion with various types of bladed weaponry, be it spears or knives or swords, and um, a sort of, uh, in many cases, bleak nihilistic worldview that we associate with mythos fiction. I love that. Bladed, uh, what did you call them? Bladed? A bladed weaponry? <laughs> bladed weaponry. I love the categorization that puts in a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, the worst now and the best in this. Uh, we have some fantastic authors lined up. Um, I was really impressed with not only the people we solicited, uh, like Carrie Vaughn and Jonathan Howard, but also we opened it up uh, to the slush pile and we got we took a lot of stories that people just sent in, people that we had never met at a con or ever heard of. Um, we have a debut author, M.K. Sauer, uh, who wrote a fantastic tale. And I think the actually the story that closes out the anthology, the one that we both immediately were like, that's the one that has to end it, was also found in the slush. And so we got an, a, an amazing range of submissions, and I'm so excited to have it come out later uh, this year because I can't wait to show everyone sort of like where Sword and Sorcery is going because it's considered, I guess, maybe a little old fashioned these days, but I see a lot of potential in it. And gosh, there's just so much richness and diversity and um, kinds of different kinds of voices and approaches to the genre that I think it's going to be a really, really exciting event when it comes out. It was pointed out to me earlier today by a mutual friend of ours that women writers writing Lovecraftian fiction isn't actually all that common. Now you're editing this anthology, co-editing, you said this anthology, but Lovecraftian fiction is also something you write as well, isn't it? I do write Lovecraftian fiction. It's probably the thing I'm known the most for because uh, it's sort of where I came up, I think. So was Lovecraft's work something you grew up reading? Was it something you were sort of attracted to very early on or did you come to his stories later? I am one of the people who came to Lovecraft much later in life. I actually started reading Lovecraft specifically because of a call for stories, gosh, six years ago. Um, I tend to write a lot of historical 
fiction and historical fantasy. And when I first started publishing, that wasn't as popular as it is now. The trend was very sort of, it happens in the tomorrow of today. Uh, and since my my mind tends to gravitate towards the historical past, I I didn't really feel like I had a lot of places to submit my stories. And then I saw a call for submissions from Innsmouth Free Press, a small Lovecraftian um, publisher run by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. And it was for historical Lovecraft. That was the title of the anthology. And I was like, okay, well, they want historical, so I'm going to read some Lovecraft. And I picked it up for the first time and fell in love with it, which sounds so mercenary, but I mean, right. hey, there's worse things, right? But, no, there's um, all sorts of ways to, to find a writer or to find work that you love. Yeah, I was I was really stoked and and I I picked up um, a couple of old paperbacks, uh, little collections of his work, and I was like, how has it been? This how how have I never read this before? This is so good, and uh, tore through a ton of his work and found a ton of stuff that I really liked and was like, okay, it's time. Like I think I'm ready. And ever since then, I've just sort of gotten deeper into reading his fiction and the people who came after writing in his tradition and it's been such a wellspring of inspiration and I've really really gotten into it in a way that I'm very very pleased that I saw that because I don't know if I ever would have taken the plunge because it always just seemed like a huge leap to make um Lovecraftiana is so large that it was very intimidating to me and so I'm glad I had the chance to find an entry point in that way yeah and of course with Lovecraft there's always that you know, having to divide the who he was from what he wrote, um, and which you know, I I read him fairly early. I found a, a, a short story anthology, and I don't even remember which one it was. In a as I did many things in a bazaar in Karachi, left behind by somebody who traveled years ago. It was a ratty little paperback, and I had no idea that Lovecraft had all this history behind him or what it was. I mean, I read it the way I read the way I read Dragonlance without knowing that sure. there was this huge sort of you know. Um, there was this huge sort of history or, or um, this sort of persona behind the person I was reading right. or the stories I was reading. And yet I didn't know until much, much later that he was this awful man. Yeah, he was so, terrible. Yeah. And then it kind of makes you think, well, you know, okay, can I divide between his work and him? And I suppose everyone has to do that at some point with him. Because you can't really deny the influence he's had on weird fiction and horror. No, it's 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 a, it's a hugely divisive problem in the weird and Lovecraftian fiction communities because a lot of there are a lot of deniers about just how terrible he was who say he was a man of his times which of course he wasn't actually he was chided by other men of his times for being a terrible racist and um I think it was Jesse my co-editor who said like uh, I think it was well I at least he said it to me so I don't know if he originated it or not but said something like well if Lovecraft was a man of his times then what what times was Langston Hughes a man of um so you know, there's you always have a choice to be terrible and embrace the worst parts of sort of modern philosophy of your time or step away from them. And he did not. He went deeper. And even Robert E. Howard was like, guy, like, I don't know if this is I don't know if that's appropriate. And when mm -hmm. Robert E. Howard is chiding you about your racist views, it may be time to take a look at your life and your choices. And people with Lovecraft, they say, well, if he, had, he, if he had only lived to see the Second World War, he would have reformed. And it's like, well, where's the evidence for that? Yeah, we, none, we right. He could have just yeah, become no so much worse. I mean, yeah, could have gone either he, way. Yeah, he, he thought Hitler was, was, a, was a cool guy. I mean, he said yeah. something about, like, I like the guy. or And it's like, whoa, okay. Um, so I don't know. It's, it is difficult. He's such a difficult personality to deal with because there are there is a lot of evidence that he was an incredibly warm and kind person and would, you know, talk to to everyone and 
and was uh, very avuncular and pleasant in person. And it's, it's easy, I think, to sort of take that evidence and say like, well, you know, I mean, I really like his fiction and it seems like he was really nice in person. And so that must mean something. And, and in the end, it, it means as much as anything else, which is, you know, all people contain multitudes and you can be an incredibly terrible person and have incredibly offensive views that are far beyond even the terrible views of your contemporaries and still be a nice person to someone in person. I mean, we see this all the time. Or just um, to be nice to some people some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's just a difficult, it's a difficult road to hoe. And I, I think because I never really engaged with his letters and, and it never, it never mattered to me in some fundamental formative way since I, maybe because I came so late to it, it wasn't like, I've idolized this person my whole life. And then I found right. out he wrote this terrible poem. It was just sort of like, Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, like look at his fiction. It's all about racial degeneracy and um, like ladies are scary. And so yeah. I just did never, I was never invested in maintaining his public image. And yeah. so uh, I don't know. Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause I mean, I read him knowing that he's writing about, Oh, ladies are scary and you know, uh, this stuff, but not realizing that he, actually felt that way in real life you know what i mean yeah. that show you write about racism but are you actually a racist in real life i mean not everyone yeah. who writes yeah. about racism or writes even work that seems racist is necessary so for me it was the other way around i was like oh wait hang on a second he is the person who you know the person yeah. that exists in his work it's a it's a that was a revelation i have to admit uh it came much later it's really sad because he was a talented writer and I think it's I, a, a lot of the a lot of the recent debate has centered, centered around the uh, bus for the the former I should right. say now because it's going to be changed the former bus for the World Fantasy Award and people saying and there were all kinds of different sides to the debate and um, the the one thing that never convinced me was people talking about like well he wasn't even that good of a writer like I disagree I think he's a fantastic writer and a terrible person and his writing is not to everyone's taste but that's to me completely to the side of the issue of whether or not he should or should not have been the uh, the iconic image of an award that has changed a lot since his face was used yeah. for it. And so it was kind of, I, I, I'm not going to say I always fall in the middle of debates because I, I, I typically take, I, I'm a very opinionated person, but this one, it was hard for me because it was like, well, no, change the award, like absolutely change the award. But whether or not he is a good writer is completely irrelevant to the discussion. The, the award honors the people who win it, not the person, not the, the image of the award itself. So it really is completely irrelevant if you like Lovecraft, if one likes Lovecraft. The issue is, does this award, this, does this award make people who win it uncomfortable? That yeah. is, that is the real the issue. And I'm glad that it's being changed because yeah. it seems like it really was. And, and that's completely understandable. And of course it can be a million gazillion other things. I mean, I don't even understand what the big deal was because it's not yeah. like this was, I mean, you, really you have the world for options. Um, yeah, it wasn't I, like he was particularly wasn't a particularly good looking award. Not not to you know. No, it was it was weird. It was. Yeah. It, I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I I kind of I kind of liked it, but I I mean I also have a degree in art history. I I was trained at a young age to appreciate incredibly ugly art. So right. I, I that's what a degree in art history does to you. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just like oh aesthetics. Um, but I, to me, I I couldn't. The people who were like pounding on their desks about like this is this is like PC persecution of of blah blah blah, and it's like no, you no, it's okay. Like it, no one's saying don't read. Well, maybe some people were, but I'm not saying don't read Lovecraft. Yeah. Like, I I don't think that's really the debate we're having. We're saying like should should people feel ambivalent or upset about something that honors their achievements? Like clearly no, and. 
and we shouldn't tell people to just get over something when when the when the level especially in this case when the extremism of his views was is so easily searchable on the internet i mean everyone right. knows how he felt and i i don't know it's just people were having empathy issues and and it made me sad because anytime i saw someone sort of tr- like championing the perspective of like keep the award like well it was just like can you just step out of your own shoes for a second and and think about how this might make people feel and i think it's going to be pretty obvious what the right answer is yeah. but eh. so now one yeah <laughs> they are changing it so now you came yes. to Lovecraft much later in life, as you were saying. So what did you grow up reading? You know, what was it that probably informed your adult tastes the most? Oh, gosh, I, I've i gone through so many reinventions of what I tend to read that uh, it that's a really interesting question. I mean, I was just I was just talking about how Narnia was probably the first. I was going to bring up Narnia later, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I think, is the first chapter book I read as my parents called it on my own um, my dad had read it to me before and I picked it up and tried to read it on my own I remember specifically learning what parentheses were from it um, and asking my parents like what is this um, and so that always has had a very special place in my heart uh, I read a lot of fantasy as a kid honestly um, I was super into it my dad was an avid reader of fantasy and science fiction especially like big big you know 17 book epics because he traveled a lot for work and would pick them up and read them the entire time he was flying. And so there was a lot of that lying around the house. Uh, I specifically remember really getting into Pern as a kid. Um, I The only thing I ever wanted was to be a dragon rider. And I was obsessed with mythological beasts. Um, and so I read a lot of that for a time. And then I kind of, I kind of drifted away from fantasy for a long time, especially when I was in college and in grad school, although um, I took a wonderful class in college it was like gender and science fiction and and that introduced me to really to Ursula K. Le Guin and a bunch of really cool writers that it sort of informed my taste as I was coming up. I think recently I've been super into grimdark fantasy. Um, not I, Joe Abercrombie is one of my favorite writers. I think he's fantastic. I love his blending of humor and just complete macabre. And that has I think that's definitely had an effect on me when I when I first read the first law, I was like, whoa, you can you can do this. Like you can you can go this dark with fantasy, and that really changed my perspective on it quite a bit. Um, but I'm also a huge fan of non-fantasy, um, non-genre. I mean, I mean, I just got a new collection of Jane Austen novels. I mean, I read them all in grad school, and I've I've always loved historical fiction, and she's probably like my number one favorite writer of all time. I just that woman's ability to use language has been so inspirational for me for so long, and her just wryness and her her wit and her ability to talk about things on the angle I think is amazing and in grad school I did 18th century literature as sort of my focus and so I read a lot of you know the first lady novelists out there who are writing in English and that was also really interesting to me too because seeing what they talk about and how how they construct character and and plot was something that I that I really took with me when I started writing professionally a few years later. So I was going to ask about The Pleasure Merchant a little later, but I'm going to bring it up now because you were just mentioning (laughs) your degree in 18th century literature. And I'm wondering if that in some way it was inevitable that it would lead you to writing The Pleasure Merchant, which is an 18th century crime novel, not essentially speculative. No, it's it's it. it, it, There are speculative elements in it, especially with the like weird science. Yeah, but But you'd still call it a crime novel before you'd call it speculative fiction. I mean, I would. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I intended to write a crime novel with it, and 
And yeah, it, it absolutely did draw on a lot of my experience with 18th century literature that I did during my MA. Um, I really, I was very inspired reading those authors because they were, it's just like a buck wild weird land, right? Like language isn't like the English language that we're just about to get to the idea of a dictionary. So there's all these funny spellings. Um, words have flexible meanings. Um, people are sort of playing with language in really exciting ways. And not only that, but they're, they're telling stories about the individual experience of everyday life, which I just found completely fascinating, especially because the first class I took on it focused on transatlantic literature. So books that in some way dealt with the slave trade and slavery in Jamaica. And so there were, there was a sort of a lot to dig into because a lot of the authors were women because they were writing from, um, I'm not going to necessarily say an abolitionist because that was a, a, a specifically political movement that some engaged with and others didn't, but they were talking about the horrors of slavery in really interesting ways and, and, and in different ways than men were, men, male writers were talking about at the time. But for me with The Pleasure Merchant, you know, what I wanted to do was sort of take that sort of spirit of nothing is solid. Social class can change in a, in, in a heartbeat in the 18th century. Like you can have a meteoric rise and then like a horrible fall. Um, everything, the, the boundary between science and religion and the way that we think about the self and the other, these are all things that in the 18th century undergo like radical change. And so I kind of wanted to channel all of that while sort of talking about modern problems of like, how do we, how do we know who we are? Uh, who who do we trust? How do we love? How do we how do we treat the other? Uh, it seemed like a right setting for the book when I wanted to talk about that those sorts of ideas. Before the pleasure motion, of course, was Vermilion, in which you subverted all these standard tropes of westerns, whether it was about gender, race, sexuality, all of them, and flipped them all around, and you kept the weird speculative fantasy factor, and still somehow managed to make it work. Will you tell me a little bit about Vermilion and what made you want to do this particular story in this particular <laughs> setting? Wow, it's. Gosh, I'm taking it back. So the 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 I can I can locate the first moment that I wanted to write Vermilion, and that is when I was class sitting for a friend of mine who was teaching a Hong Kong cinema class, and she was going out of town for a conference, and she asked me if I would show her film for her students, and the film was Mr. Vampire, and I had never seen it before, and I was watching it and just sitting in the back of the class as you know a bunch of undergrads are sort of alternately enthralled with the film and their phones in that way because um, I wasn't I wasn't trying to scold them but I'm just watching it and I'm leaning forward in my seat like what is this I've never seen anything like this before and it's um, it's amazing 1985 film amazing practical effects stars Lam Ching Ying who is an amazing martial artist and actor he was a friend he was friends with Bruce Lee and it's all about a Taoist priest who is, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's really about the difference, the differences between, it's a movie about how Taoism is awesome and Confucianism can be a problem, which is a really funny premise for an action movie, in my opinion. And so yeah. I was just completely enthralled by this tension between like, oh no, but, but our father said he wanted to be buried in this way, but no, now it's turned him into a, into Mr. Vampire. And so we have to defeat him. And I was just, it was this amazing spectacle and I got super into it and, I thought, gosh, it would be so cool to see this kind of thing set in the American West. And I don't know, I, I really don't know how I made that leap if I was watching something at the time or think, like reading a Western. I'm pretty sure I wasn't. I'm pretty sure I was in the heart of the Caribbean in my master's degree, but somehow it was just like, maybe it was the sort of free-for-all spirit of it. Um, and I just thought it would be really cool to do something with a Taoist priest in the American West and... 
I did a little writing on it when I was still doing my MA, and it was years later that I actually started on the novel that would become Vermilion. But the first character who appeared was Lou, and she was a gender fluid Taoist priest chain smoker who had a sort of like, oh well, kind of attitude. And I don't, and she just stuck with the project, even though it went through a, a ton of revisions. So now you've also just begun, I believe, editing a magazine of erotica called Congress. How did you yes. land this gig? This sounds like fun. <laughs> it, it, it's it's proven to be a lot of fun so far. So um, I my friend Jeremy Tolbert runs a web design business called Clockpunk Studios, where he designs websites for mainly for writers. He's a writer himself, very talented. He's had a ton of publications all over the place, and he's an incredibly talented graphic designer and web designer. And so he makes amazing websites for writers because he knows what writers need. And a side project of his for the last few years has been a magazine called The Big Click, which is a crime fiction magazine edited by Nick Mamatas. And right. I've worked for Jeremy for a while, and I sort of became the behind the because I've worked behind the scenes for magazines for since 2009 when I started working for Fantasy Magazine. Um, he asked if I would just sort of take over the operations in terms of like make it look pretty, post these things, wrangle bio, uh, biographies and all that. And so. I've been working on it quietly for years at this point, and the big click is winding down. Um, our next issue will be our last. And Jeremy, Jeremy and I were talking, and he said something like, "You know, I'm 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 interested in sort of doing new something new, and I'm not quite sure what. But if you have any ideas, let me know." And at some point, I just sort of was like, "Gosh, it, I'd really like to edit a sort of thoughtful erotica magazine that is welcoming to genre fiction and." slice of life and confessional whatever whatever it is that people want to write about i would like to to read it and have it out there because it can be it can be interesting and challenging finding salacious material and there are people out there doing amazing work especially with the um the advent of like tumblr and web comics and things like that and i'd seen a bunch of new erotic web comics and was sort of inspired by the idea of these people just sort of doing this work and then putting it out there and um, I kind of wanted to do that with my editorial skills. And so I proposed Congress and Jeremy jumped at the idea, I think because people do tend to associate my work with like a little bit of raunch, um, right. which I think is interesting because I don't, I, I never even really think about it. People, people are like, wow, that was really dirty. And I was like, oh, I guess, I guess that's true. So it seemed like something that I could helm. And so I'm drawing, I am open to submissions in a, in a, in a, in a, in a general sense. I'm, I'm reading pitches from people and I've, contacted a few of my writer friends who also tend to have pretty hot stuff in their writing to see if they'd be interested in putting that forward. And so I'm I'm excited about who I think we're going to have in the magazine in the coming months. So Your day must be insane. How do you get everything done? I, I know you're up early because you're talking I, to me I and we're like 13 uh, hours apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I, I'm not the best at delegating, um, but I am good at sort of compartmentalizing. So I'll set aside various blocks of time to, to work on various projects. Um, and I'm, I'm lucky in that my day jobish work is something I can also do piecemeal and from home. And so I'm able to sort of bang out a week's worth of work and then have blocks of time to work on whatever writing project I'm working on or editorial project. Um, and it's it's very nice in that way to have a sort of flexible ability to navigate all the different stuff that I like to do because I am kind of all over the place. Like I'm not I'm not just a novelist or just a short story writer. Like I when I I, I, get, I find it challenging to focus on just one thing, and I find I'm most productive when I 
have blocks of time that are devoted to one thing or the other and I can sort of exercise my brain in different ways I guess so do you still have a day job as well Yes, I do. I, 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 it is a writing gig, but it is something I do write non-creatively. I would say I write, um, a website copy and that is another whole, a whole different skill set that actually I think keeps me honest because I need clear and direct communication. Right. I'm not, I'm not writing in my voice. I'm writing to the internet. And so I think it helps me hone my ability to make, keep my voice mutable and, and not and and get the information out there. So yeah. that's interesting because that's a whole separate sort of it's it is like another part of your brain altogether, right? You have sort of killed yeah. the the creative angle. Yeah. It's you know, I it's interesting. I guess because I'm I've always sort of been a pastiche artist. Like I love working in different styles and genres that to me it just feels like yet another voice. Um and so I get to channel that, but it does mean that I have to definitely force myself to like stand up and exercise because I it is easy to get up at the crack of dawn and sit down in front of my laptop and and then realize it's you know 5:30 at, at night and so um, that's I think the biggest challenge honestly is is staying active and staying fit along with sort of managing the fact that my MacBook Pro is the altar at which I pray every day for like a really really long time so right well, speaking of, you know, getting up and, and, and exercising and getting out there, every place I read about you on the Internet, there was men- a mention of mixing drinks and martial arts. And do you have this like secret life as a highfalutin mixologist? And if so, will you tell us some secrets? Ooh, well, I, I don't know how secret it is. I definitely love mixology. I love making people drinks. I got super into cocktails actually at a world horror convention when a bunch of of course it had to be at a convention right right i know right and because i i've always i i haven't always been into cocktails specifically um i've i and then oh gosh oh i just lost my train of, okay uh we went to a bunch of people invited me to a bar called peche in austin when world horror was there a few years ago and i was completely awed by this cocktail place i had never seen drinks like this it was it was very pre-prohibition style um, mixology so classic cocktails done right and they even had an absinthe fountain and i was enchanted with it and i just wanted to know a lot about it and i had a friend there who was very into cocktails and he sort of helped me navigate the menu and i came home and i was like okay i want to master this because i i tend to hit my habits hard like i I really like I was really into mixing drinks for a long time. Now I'm I, I've been watching the Great British Bake Off and now I've been baking a lot of bread. And so I, I tend to flip from thing to thing. But then I want to just learn everything about it. And so I read a bunch of books on the science of mixology and vintage cocktail manuals um, years before I had bought my husband uh, a book called The Gentleman's Guide. Um, and it was a two volume work of nonfiction by this crazy guy who used to sail around in the Florida Keys, which, and my husband is from South Florida, so he was super into this guy, and the cookery section was really weird, like, jellied things that you would find in, like, the 30s and 40s, so we haven't really explored that, but the cocktail book, everything had a story. It was like, well, I came up with this absinthe cocktail when this royal, when this royal prince from some country came, and and he really wanted to pick me up after a long night, and it's like, you fed him absinthe when he had a hangover? Okay, well, it was a different time, Um, and I just really got into reading about it, and um, and I do mix a good drink. I, I, I think I have a talent for it, not to not to be immodest, but people seem to like it. And I also, one of the things I really like to do is figure out what cocktail 
someone would like the most after talking to them and mixing it for them because a lot of people are like, well, I don't really like drinks. And it's like, well, if you've only had a gin and tonic at a bar, that's totally understandable because they don't, you know, a lot of tonic water that you get out at a bar doesn't even really have real quinine in it. And so you, when you finally hit those flavors that have been enchanting people for so long and you find something sort of weird on the palate that's intriguing, I think it can really affect people's understanding of why a good cocktail is such a, a, a glorious fleeting experience. And so uh, I really, I'm very enthusiastic about um, cocktails and mocktails too. I really, for my friends who don't drink, I, I often like to concoct interesting um, sensory beverages for them that don't involve alcohol because, you know, not everyone likes the taste or, you know, enjoys drinking. And so it's just fun to, it's part of my, I love to give people what they like. I just really like to make people happy, honestly. And cocktails are a way to do it. And I hope that my writing is a way to do it a lot of the time. So it feeds into the same sort of like, let me make you laugh or smile or, or feel happy for a brief moment, because that's a very important thing. You make cocktails sound so good and I don't even drink. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I'm I'm more interested in in uh, this whole idea of I mean mocktails. I always thought those were ridiculous and a disaster. I would think why would you bother? But the thing is, alcohol does taste bad. And why would I beat yes. my why would I beat my taste buds into submission to accept the taste of alcohol? So I never have. But you make it sound good. I appreciate that. I bet you are very good <laughs> at what you do. Now you mentioned Narnia a little earlier. I know you're starting a Narnia reread for Jared at Bornakish, aren't you? Um, C.S. Lewis books, of course, were a childhood favorite. Why are you going back to them now? Are you worried they'll be different? You won't like them as much? You will see them in a in a different way? Uh, I'm 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 intrigued. I it's been a really long time since I've read all of them. Um, I I am a little nervous about it, honestly, because I mean C.S. Lewis was a vexed figure, and there there there's some really just like OCS kind of moments in the Narnia Chronicles, which I am, I I have read, I've reread them since I was a kid, just not in the last I think decade. Um, I still have my old copies that I read growing up actually on my bookshelf waiting for me. And uh, it's tough. Like I, I've never been a religious person. Um, I never went to church as a kid. Uh, My dad was raised Jewish, my mom Methodist, and they sort of didn't really impose religion on me. We definitely celebrated Christmas because my dad just didn't care about Hanukkah or anything like that. Um, And so I am familiar with Christian theology, but it was never an essential part of my life growing up. And so Narnia is this weird thing for me. It's so special to me because I think I was, I grew up reading them able to sort of divorce it from the sort of, elements that I think make a lot of people uncomfortable. I actually remember the first time I, my dad read me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At the end of it, you know, they were sort of like, so what do you think about that whole story about um, like a figure who, a messianic figure who came back to sacrifice himself for, and I was just like, gosh, it was so cool, that lion. Like, and I just had no idea that it was actually a Christian parable, par, um, par, yeah, parable? I think it's the yeah, right word. Yeah. <laughs> or at least parallel. Uh, we'll go with that. Um, it never occurred to me until much, much, much later. I mean, way older than I think most people are like, this is a story about Jesus. I had no idea. And so it did have, but it did have a re- religious effect on me. Like I, I definitely, I think Asline is super cool most of the time. Um, you know, we disagree on some, some minor points of theology, but in terms of the, like, you should go outside, you should run around in the woods and you should have a good time and be nice to people. I'm like, I'm there Aslan. I'm totally there. I mean, in Prince Caspian, he basically like presides over a Bacchanal and I'm like, this is a thing right. I can totally get behind. Right. Like, 
All right. So I'm I'm interested to see how my perspective has changed and what's colored my and 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 how I am going to react to it now because there is some some really dreadful stuff in there. But I don't know. I'm very excited to get back to Narnia. I've always been looking for that wardrobe, like ever since I was a kid. So. So this is going to be one way to try and look for it. I think so. I mean, it's it's I. I, I'm not a huge fan of portal fantasy. Like, I guess that's the genre how you, that people call How can it. you say that? How can you say that after saying all this about Nani? It's like classic I portal know. fantasy. I've never hit anything that... that I'd ne- it's, it's tough. Like, times that I have found them, they've just never affected me in the same way. I mean, I just... I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I tried to read Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, and I was just like, nope. Like, and that had more to do with other things than necessarily the portal fantasy element. But... Um, I do tend to like fantasy more where it's just a world apart um, rather than like, gosh, an everyday person ends up in this totally new place and they have to figure out all the this and that and the other thing. I, there are ones that I really like. I mean, Sabriel by Garth Nix is a huge one that I really liked. I Last year, I rewatched Vision of Escaflone, this anime from the mid 90s that I love that's the most bizarre anime I've ever encountered in my entire life. That's definitely a portal fantasy. And so I do like them, but it's not necessarily my preferred like if I hear about like ooh a new portal fantasy I'm not going to run out in the same way that I would run out for other genres I guess so um, I don't know I but I, I guess that's weird because I, I really have always been waiting for my Hogwarts letter I guess so alright so what's next for you I know we mentioned a little bit earlier before we started recording the, uh, the big big secret that I'm going to spill right now is that you're working on some stuff I am and you're some writing stuff. some stuff, and then you're going to sell it, and then there'll be I'm books. Yep, yeah. I'm, that's so, <laughs> anything more than that? What's happening yes, next? Oh, I, let's wait. Hang on. The one we do know about is Rumbullion, right? Yes, Rumbullion. So, Rumbullion is... I. It was first published in my second collection that came out through Agaeus Press. Uh, that was a limited edition hardcover that is sold out, and so it's no longer available, and... So I'm putting out a, or rather, my publisher is putting out um, a standalone edition of the novella, I guess. It's a, it's very short. It's like 45,000 words. And I'm really excited that more people have the potential to read it because I really like Rumbolian and, and due to the limited edition nature, it was a limited thing. And so only 250 people maximum have potentially read this unless they pirated it. But Rumbolian is really, it's, it's such a fun story to me. I... I guess, I mean, I like it, obviously, I wrote it, but it's about the Count of Saint-Germain, who is this interesting historical figure in that he was believed to be an immortal who could control gems and, like, pass from realm to realm, and he's still, I mean, theosophists are still super into the Count of Saint-Germain, but he was a real historical person, and he was in England for a short time, and so... Rumbolian is set during the time that he was living in England and he is invited um, to come and be part of the entertainment at a fun weekend at a country house and he goes and it gets weird um, The it gets really really weird and all kinds of stuff happens and no one has the same experience of it it's sort of it's it's definitely my Rashomon type tale where everyone had a different experience of this one event and the conceit of it is that the young man of the house has a really bad time of it that weekend and after the fact decides to try to create an authoritative account of what occurred at his house and he writes to a bunch of people who were there 
and has conversations with people who had experiences, but no one has had the same experience to the same to the to the degree that some people insist that oh that person wasn't even there like what are you talking about like that never happened and so um, he tries to get a full picture and it is incredibly difficult because yeah potentially magic is involved it's very difficult to say and the other exciting thing about Rumbolian to me is that it does tangentially tie into Vermilion. And for those people who have read Vermilion, given that Rumbolian is set in the 18th century, like there's really only one way that that could happen. So that's, that's the clue. Uh, like only, only a few immortal characters in that one. So it does, it does kind of dovetail with it, but not in a way that it's prohibitive to read one or the other without having read one or the other, if that makes any sense. It does. Uh, but completely random question that I just realized I must ask before I let you go, if you have a couple more minutes. Have you ever considered making specific cocktails for each of your books or your stories? I have done that actually. Um, yes, I, 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 it's funny. I, I do tend to like to play with classic cocktails in that way. And when I, when I signed with my agent for Vermilion, I actually made a cocktail um, based on the classic cocktail, the Corpse Reviver Number Two, which was one of the drinks that I actually drank at Pache. Um, in that story that I told a little bit earlier. And the Corpse Reviver number two is, the Corpse Reviver number one is a very bizarre drink involving, I believe, cognac and heavy cream. But the Corpse Reviver number two is this heady concoction that involves lemon and Lilit Blanc and gin and Cointreau and a little bit of absinthe. And the best part of it is you serve it in a cocktail glass and you classically put um, a delicious a real maraschino cherry not the sort of lye bleached kind that right, you find not the canned in, ones no not the canned ones the real ones that are made with a maraschino liqueur and you put that in the bottom with a little bit of maraschino syrup over it so that it stays like a little treat at the bottom of your glass it's your dessert after your cocktail and it's such a fun drink and i i reworked it to call it the chinese necromancer because you know that's sort of necromancer is a totally fair translation of what um Taoist priests do in certain ways of dealing with the dead. And so I, I mixed it up with instead of Cointreau, I used ginger liqueur and lime juice instead of lemon. And so, yeah, I did that to celebrate signing with my agent. And then in the original Rumbolian, um, the collection, I did pair all of the stories with various cocktails um, to sort of, uh, as an added, as an added Bonus. Not only did you get short stories, but you also got an accompanying libation, which is why the title of the collection was Rumboli and another liminal libations, because I wanted to sort of have that sensory experience of pairing a nice something nice to sip on with something reading, something you're reading and um, having them fit in with one another in a sort of multimedia kind of way. All right. So I'm looking forward to this now, even more so now. Oh, thank you so much. Before. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a blast.